Welcome to a new episode of Product Directions Podcast, 100 Product Strategies. We are your insider access to top product leaders shaping the strategy of the most diverse industries today. I'm your host, Nacho Vassino, and I'll be digging into the real-life situations, problems, and frameworks used for a strategy with product people all around the world in all kinds of products and markets. While there is no recipe for success, listening to others' experiences may give you the edge you need to solve your next strategic challenge. Hello, everyone. Today I'm with Andrew Scottsko, and he has been a product leader for many years now and has uh, some interesting stories to share with us. So, Andrew, welcome to the program. Nacho, thank you. It's so good to be here with you. Uh, can you talk a bit about yourself and who you are and what you have been doing lately? Absolutely. So, yeah, I've, I, as you said, I've been in the product game for a long time. And, and like many of us, I, I think I have that weird background where I bounced around and did a lot of different things. I started my career actually in, in marketing and then realized I wanted to build stuff. So I became an engineer, did that for a number of years before discovering this wonderful thing that's also weird called product. And I've been doing that ever since for the last, you know, I don't know, 12 years or something. Um, and so now um, I was an operational product leader up until about a year ago. And then I, I took a little break. And then now I went, uh, I'm a full-time product coach. So I work with product leaders and their teams really to build, build and scale the right product and the culture and, and really unlock this lovely thing we all like to talk about with product-led growth. So that's what I spend my time on these days. <laughs> if they know what product-led growth is. If they, <laughs> yes, if, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, interesting. Um, so, I mean, I, knowing that you have been in, in many different companies, I, I am sure that you will have some interesting stories. But the typical opening question for me is, okay, can you tell us about one time when you were doing product strategy and kind of walk us through the, the process, the steps that you took there? Probably an right. interesting story to share. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So this, I'm going to take us back a couple of years here. So this goes back to, oh boy, 20, 2018-ish, 2018-2019. And so I was working uh, at a place called Applied Invention, which is a phenomenal, um, you can think of it kind of like a skunk works. And so what we did was we did joint ventures with Fortune 100 and 500 companies. So we would basically team up with these big companies and go after new markets that could be created. And so we would build out together, we would, we would fund and build out a whole product, usually basically launch an entire new division of a company. So what we were working with, we, were, we saw this opportunity in the, we were all very interested in the climate space uh, and also in the aquaculture space. And this had, this had started a few years prior. So basically, if you, if you zoom way out, if you go back to, you know, I don't know, 2016 or so, and you looked at a lot of the, the global trends around climate, around the changes in the population, basically you could see a few things happening. Number one, a huge percentage of the world's population lives within, I think it's like 100 kilometers of water and relies on fish protein as their primary protein source. It's, it's, a, it's a very large percentage. I forget exactly what it is. Secondly, if you looked at the changes with climate change, what was happening to the ocean um, and the wild fish populations, you could see things didn't look good. So the punchline of all of this is like, basically as a species, humanity, we need fish, uh, fish farming and aquaculture to work and we need it to work well and to be sustainable. And so we got very interested in this problem and started like exploring this together and we saw an opportunity to build something to actually move this market. So the fish farming market is really driven by the salmon market and specifically by the salmon market in Norway. They lead the world. So basically whatever Norway does in salmon, the rest of the world will follow. This is like, if you think of the Tesla strategy of like, you know, build the fancy thing first and then it comes down, th that's Norway in fish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So you yeah. mean in terms of uh, technology advancements? That's Correct. Okay, Correct. Yeah. Like, like Norway is the world leader in salmon farming and, and arguably in aquaculture technology. So they, and the part of the reason for that is that salmon is a premium fish. And so they have the money to invest in stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's just kind of how it goes. And so, um, Anyways, so if basically we, we end up in this position where we we did a partnership for a product that is now live in the world. Uh, what this product is, is it is essentially a decision support tool for fish farmers. And so if you're a fish farmer, you have, you know, in, in, a, in a pen of, let's say, you know, they have these very large pens. And inside a pen, you could have 100,000 fish that is, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of inventory just in this one pen. 
And so in, in pens and fish farming, this is, this is all just a bunch of context, by the way, which hopefully will make this product make sense. Um, when you have a bunch of fish in a pen, there are certain things that happen that are a problem that are not a problem in the wild. So one of these is a disease or a pet, rather a pest, excuse me, a pest called sea lice. It's like a little bug and it, it's naturally occurring in the wild. It's not harmful to humans or anything like this. It happens in the wild. It's not really a problem. But when you have a bunch of fish in much closer quarters, like you would in a fish farm, this can get out of hand. And when it does, it gets bad fast. So this problem basically has like, if, if it gets, if it, if it gets away on you and it runs away on you and you're a fish farmer, you're screwed. And so it's something that if you're a fish farmer, you have to stay on top of all the time. And the moment it gets ahead of you, you could, I mean, you're at risk of losing your entire crop, which could knock your entire farm out of business. Like this, this is borderline existential threat kind of thing. So that's the context here and what, what's going on. So then if you, if you look at all this at the same time, this is, and this is all setting a context for the strategy here, right? <laughs> so the other thing is, so we have basically a wealthy market that is critically important to the world, and yet it was supply capped. Why was it supply capped? Because there are a lot of environmental and health concerns around the health of fish farms and the health of the fish coming out of those farms. And so literally there was a regulatory, essentially a regulatory limit in place by the Norwegian government on fish farms, which said like, if you don't, essentially, if you don't get this handled, like you cannot expand. So if you imagine being a CEO of one of these farming companies, you have essentially existential pressure on you where you can't actually expand unless you solve this problem. Okay, here we are. Now we have the context for why there was something to build here. So I, I, I will later ask about how you get all that context, but let's let's yeah, okay, with the story. All right, great. Yeah. So so this is the context of why there was why there was a thing to do here. And so if you're, uh, for example, the, the biggest company in the world, and you know they were they're, they're this is well known on the internet. You can find it is is now called Moi. Uh, I think it's M O W I. It's one of the biggest fish farming companies in the world. They're number one in Norway, or at least they were last time I checked. So if you were the CEO of that company, you couldn't grow your company. That's a problem. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a big problem. It's a very, you're very big problem. You're willing to pay a lot of money to solve it. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to invest in solving this problem. And so the solution was basically, all right, we got to get this sea lice thing under control, um, both to be able to expand, but also, so that's the upside. And the downside prevention is that if we don't and it gets out of hand on us, we could lose an entire crop. It can, we can lose millions and millions of dollars or whatever the equivalent was in, in your, your currency of choice. So... <laughs> This is the context. This is why it's important. And so the solution was there has got to be a better way to do this. And so the opportunity that we saw is that the way this problem historically was handled, I kid you not, is you would take two guys, two like 19 year old guys, and you'd put them in a little boat and they'd go out there like once a week and fish a bunch <laughs> of like they would like take a little net and pull like 20 fish out of the pen and like look at the fish, count what's on the fish. I, I swear, this is actually what happened. <laughs> and, and you would basically make your decisions, your health treatment decisions on this basis. And, you know, you don't have to be a PhD in stats to know that that is not exactly the most like sophisticated <laughs> method for making multi, multi-million dollar decisions. And so, you know, it doesn't take too long until you're like, all right, th there's, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so... Indeed, there is. And so what, what we ended up creating was a product. It is a product that is essentially, we built an underwater robotic system. That's, it's basically an underwater robotic system with computer vision. And so what it would do is it would basically sit in the pen with all the fish. And as fish go by, it would take really, really high res photos of these fish and then use computer vision to detect the level of uh, pest infestation on these fish do a bunch of population modeling, roll up all these stats and basically turn it into a very actionable report for a farmer. So it could say like, Hey, Nacho, this is the, this is the lice load of the fish in pen three. Here is it across the farm. Here is it across all your farm sites. Is it a problem? Is it going well? Are you good? Do you need to call in like XYZ treatment solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was basically giving, equipping the farmers with far better intelligence to make really important operational decisions. So that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the product. So uh, tell me where you want to go with it. <laughs> no, it's interesting. You put this, put <laughs> these two 19-year-old boys out of business. I swear. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. <laughs> I, I swear. This is actually how it was done for like 100 years. <laughs> the, the, the thing I had in my head was like, you know, when we make fun of these product companies not experimenting very well, and you look at other industries and things can get worse. So it's an interesting example. The interesting part I want to kind of uh, proceed on was kind of the, the process to coming up with the strategy. So um, 
I don't want to kind of uh, infer it, but I guess that a lot of it was kind of pulling this, all this context that you share uh, was something did previous to strategy as sort of market research or how, how do you come about all this wonderful information signaling that this is a very important problem? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's um, misleading, if you're, if you're the person listening to this and you hear a story like I just told, I think one of the things that's a little bit confusing or misleading about it is it feels like that's, you know, that, that all fit together very nicely as if I just, you know, we went and just picked that up off a shelf or something that that's actually the output of a staggering amount of like research and discussion and analysis and yada, yada, yada. Um, so talking about that is, is I think that sounds like where you want to explore is like, how yeah. do you get there? Okay. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, like a lot of things, it does start with market research and, you know, looking at industry trends. In this case, we were also looking at like global population trends and, and climate trends, because that was something we were very interested in and cared about. Um, and so, you know, you could, I feel like it's, it's not that hard actually to discover the, the, that there's an, a general problem area. I think the, the hard part is going from the general problem to the specific problem. So for example, it doesn't take very long to realize like, oh, it, it, in the case I just gave, it, it didn't take too long to realize like, oh, wow, this, this, like, this aquaculture thing is a big deal and we've got to figure this out. Like that, you can get there pretty quickly. Then the question is like, what do you do about it? That's the part where I think the context becomes really important. And so what we did there was we started looking at a lot of the industry trends and we said, okay, who, like, what does this supply chain look like? You know, how, like, what is, what is the chain of, of events? Like, how does, how does fish even end up on your plate? Like when you go to, when you go to the store and there's a fish there, how did it get there? And the who are all the journey. people? Yeah, exactly. What is the journey of the fish? Never mind the user. Let's talk about fish. <laughs> right. And so we were talking a lot about that. And, um, but then there was other questions that it brought up as well, because if you trace the user experience, you know, so let's, let's take the, the, um, let's take the grocery store as like this, this handoff point, right? So before yeah. that point, we don't have users, we just have fish and we have fish going through a supply chain. And then all of a sudden we have Nacho with his family at the grocery store saying, let's have salmon tonight. You're picking up the salmon, you're going home with it, off you go. And so if we looked at this whole journey, which we did, there's different places you can jump in there to play. You can say, okay, do I wanna talk about the traceability story, right? Do I want to wow. look at, like if you're, for you, the consumer, one of the things we considered was, okay, do we look at the traceability of the fish to tell you, here is where this fish came from. Here's how it was handled that. So, you know, it's healthy and sustainable and so forth. Yeah. That's an option. Another option was, you know, you go back into the supply chain and every step along that way and you say, okay, where is there, where is there an intervention point? So I think to actually say, how do you get the context is first off, it's just a lot of conversations. And I think one of the big mistakes that people make is. Um, I don't know if everybody makes this, but is thinking like you can just Google this stuff. Like, oh, I'm going to just go figure this out by Googling a bunch of industry reports and whatever. And I think you start there, but then you have to go talk to people. Um, I mean, this yeah. is like customer development 101. This is Steve Blank stuff. Um, so we just got, I mean, we got out of the building. We talked to, I, I have no idea how many people we talked to, but I mean, I talked to like statisticians who work for the Norwegian government. I talked to like the guy who's the Yoda of fish health in Norway. <laughs> Um, I, you know, we just talked to like dozens, if not hundreds of people building this picture up. Um, now granted this was like a slow process and it took a while, but we were yeah. building a multi-year strategy. Um, yeah. am I answering your question? Feel free to redirect. Yeah, absolutely. Not. So, so the way, we are, I mean, the, the way I'm framing this is we are talking about the, the initial phase of the strategy and maybe an, an interesting follow-up question is how are you organizing all these options? So you, you are kind of being receiving or having all these yeah. conversations that probably spark a lot of potential opportunities. How are you mapping those? Yeah, I love that question. So there, there's a few different frameworks I've used over the years. I, I like it, you know, in your book, you talk about like the wall of insights. And mm -hmm. I think that is an inevitable step that, that always happens is you just <laughs> end up with literally a giant wall of stuff, whether it's a physical wall or like a virtual one on Miro or whatever, like you, you yeah. do need to put all this stuff together somewhere. Um, at the time we were, this was pre pandemic. And so we were doing a lot of in-person stuff. So we literally had a couple war rooms in different mm -hmm. places where we literally just had giant walls of stuff. And so there was like one wall that was a huge whiteboard of that entire journey. I described from like the salmon hatchling all the way to you eating dinner. <laughs> there was like a giant <laughs> whiteboard with every step in that process and all the, all the categories of players in between. So that anytime we were having a conversation, we could say like, where are we? in this journey. 
right? Are we talking this part or this part? So that, that was one thing. But I think the other thing that's interesting to explore is, um, I don't know if this is something you've covered with your audience before, but are, do you, have you talked much about like Wardley mapping? No, no, no. Okay. So, so for just a bit of context, there's a guy named Simon Wardley. He created this thing called Wardley mapping. Um, and it, it's a bit hard to get your head around at first, but in, in essence, it is a, it's one approach to mapping the world and insights and trying to contextualize this stuff and then predict what, how, what might happen. And so what it does is it maps the evolution of something against, um, it basically maps the the evolution of a, of a technology or a market over time. And then you can start to predict well, what might happen next because there are some predictable patterns. And so there was a number of ways we mapped this. The first one was, as I said, supply chain, all the players through the user journey. And then you zoom in on the part you chose. So we, we then realized like, okay, the place that we could make the biggest difference with technology here was on the farm itself. And so then we did another map of the whole farm. And so we did the whole user journey within a farm context. Um, and then the other thing was adding money to it. And so, uh, you know, what I mean by that is like what we started doing or, or was we had a map that, you know, everyone's familiar with user journey maps. That's super normal. Yeah. But yeah. then what we started doing was like literally adding denominations of money and where value would change hands in the form of currencies or contracts. Oh, okay. And so, for example, um, the way... This is something I never knew before, but the way fish is bought and sold is on futures contracts. So it turns out that if you're a fish farmer, you already sold the fish like before it was even alive. <laughs> and so <laughs> we didn't know that. And so we found out that like somebody had already made a deal and then they were targeting a contract to fulfill. They had, they had pre-sold, I will deliver you this many kilos of salmon at this date in the future. And everything they did was aligned to that. And so that like, when we discovered that, for example, like when we discovered that bit of context, that changed the map because suddenly that was this early constraint that was missing from the map. And we realized, oh, everything, uh, everything we were looking at is actually shaped by something that we were not even aware of. And so uh, I feel like I'm going around in circles a little bit, but I think the key here is to make it visual and make it accessible for everybody to, to hammer on. So um, I think it's very important, whether physically or virtually, that anyone involved in this thing can gather around the map, move some pieces around and be like, hey, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, perfect. And maybe that's a good jump to the next question, which is, okay, now you have all this world full of journeys, insights, uh, potential areas of action. How do you start selecting? So so what are the conversations or what are the methods that you can use to, to select among those? Yeah, I, I wish that I was as rigorous about it then as uh, as I am today, and as your book suggests. Because it's, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously anyone listening to this is probably familiar with it. I, I wish that we were as rigorous about it then. Um, the thing that we knew was important was focus, right? Everybody says that, but it's so hard, and and that's a trope, but it's so true. And so the hard the hard thing was saying, what are we not going to do? Um, and so we looked at, we were, we were kind of taking more of a technology first angle on this because there was a lot of other players going after the same opportunity. Oh, okay. we, were, we were not the only people who saw this opportunity. Um, I mean, that makes sense, right? You have, a wealth, you have a wealthy market, a lot of money to be had, a lot of opportunity to make a difference. There's going to be competition. Yeah. So we had to choose between what are we going to pursue? Are we going to pursue this like lice management thing? Are we going to pursue, um, uh, are we going to, pursue something else like, uh, for example, biomass estimation, which is basically saying like, that, remember that contract I said, like it's, yeah. it's basically a way of estimating how many kilos do I have in that pen right now? <laughs> like, am I on track for my contract? <laughs> so that was another one that was a really good contender. It was, it was what do we do this biomass thing? Because that drives their entire business. And so mm -hmm. what we, what we, what we looked at then was we started to look at, like you might imagine, we looked at competitive opportunities. Like what are the threats? Who's, who are the existing players? What trajectory do we see for them? Are they, do we see anything where there's actually an opportunity to jump ahead here? And is there a sequencing at play? So for me, I think first about cutting and then I think about sequencing. Um, and what I mean by that is when I, when I talk about cutting, everybody says focus, but everyone confuses the word focus with prioritization. And so the way I differentiate focus and prioritization is cutting versus ranking or ordering. And for me, focus yeah. is cutting, like we are okay. cutting down the world. Once we've cut down the world, then we can prioritize it. And so my first, my first job is to like, how much can we take off the table? And I want to take as many things off the table as I can. And I'm, I'm, I am asking everyone to look at 
where is the leverage? Where is the leverage financially, technologically? Um, where do we have a, a technological advantage? Like, are we, do we, do we know something? Are we good at something that other people weren't? And our answer at that time, this, you know, this is go back to, when was this? This is 2017, 18, 19. We were really good at computer vision. We were early on that. So we had, we had a really strong team of people who could actually write, you know, the computer vision algorithms to do this work, which is insanely hard today. It was even harder then. This is like right as NVIDIA was starting to come up with their frameworks. There wasn't all the open source stuff there is today. Um, and so we saw that as, as an edge. We said, okay, we, can, we think we can, we can do something there. And so that was the angle we chose. We said, all right, look, there's a lot of people in the biomass space already. We don't, there's, I don't know, we don't really see an edge to be had. Like it makes sense, but later, but we need momentum going into it. Like it, and so ask me in a second about the roll-up strategy that emerged. But just to start with the first product, it was like, where is a breakthrough product? Okay. Right. We Perfect. knew there was a whole suite of products to be made here. There was a, you could build a massive business around all this stuff and all the needs of the farm, but where, how do you break through? And so the combination of a serious customer pain with getting this mm -hmm. life situation under control, um, it had suddenly become not just painful, but urgent because of this regulatory issue. And we, we saw that, that we, we could take a shot at this technical innovation that was at least three years ahead. And so that was how we made the bet. And so we said, we're not going to do biomass yet. We're not going to mm -hmm. do uh, traceability yet. Uh, we're not going to do all these other things that are important and good ideas because we think this is the one that is burning and that there's yeah. a chance to break through with. So that, does that make sense in terms of how we how we how we absolutely, cut down? Absolutely. I mean, I I love the the combination of underserved need with a strength that you can leverage to build an advantage. So it's a very very clever. Sounds like a very clever decision, <laughs> at least from your storytelling. <laughs> it always sounds better after the fact. <laughs> Perfect. I can tell you, it was, um, it was never it was never so clean in the middle for anyone who thinks it is. It's always a bit of a as Scott Belsky's book says, it's always a messy middle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm interested in something you said in between, like the sequencing part where you, mm. so you, you mentioned this breakthrough technology. So I have two kind of follow-up questions. The first one is, did you put a kind of time estimation between kind of, uh, okay, we are kind of deciding on this and we need to, for sure, it's a hardware product, so build, how, how long will it take to build, to put in the market and so on. And then you mentioned sequencing is this kind of part, parting this idea into milestones or is kind of sequencing after potential products. When I was saying sequencing there, I was referring to more of a portfolio level strategy in terms of okay. like a sequence of, of products to bring to market and, and like a series of, of different product market fits. So we knew, we felt confident that if we could do this lice thing and break through with that, there were quite a few other add-on opportunities and products that you could build out into a suite. And that, that's exactly what ended up happening, by the way. And we can maybe talk about that later. But um, to your point about the, the technology side, so you know, this is, you know, this is four, four years ago, basically. And we were doing, I, I joke about it now that like we chose to make our life really hard in all the ways at the same time where we <laughs> decided to go with computer vision, which is hard today. And it was harder then. Um, we, so it was not only computer vision, it was also embedded systems and robotics mm -hmm. that were remote in the feet. Like they were off in fjords in Norway, 3000 miles away from where I live. And they're, oh, on top of all that, they're underwater, underwater. Yeah. in salt water. <laughs> so um, I joke about that now of like, why did we do all this? And well, because that was the problem. So um, when I think about the sequencing you're asking about, there are a lot, this one was very complex because it had all these dependencies. So the hardware was, I mean, hardware, if anyone, anyone who's done hardware will tell you hardware is hard because it has just layers and layers of dependencies and your cost of change is so much higher than in software. That's like the real thing is that when you make a mistake or something's wrong, which is inevitable, it, it's just way more expensive and slower to fix. Um, but the other piece, and this is just a tip for anyone who's thinking about doing a computer vision or AI type product. Um, if you think you're going to do something like that, actually one of your biggest risks that you are, you might overlook if you haven't done this before is a feasibility risk, which is the data you need to train the algorithms you want may not exist. Interesting. 
That makes sense. Part of the reason OpenAI, right? Yeah, like where's that data set? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, we made it and it was expensive. Yeah. <laughs> it was very expensive. Uh, and it was a lot of work and there's a whole other set of stories there of like, but you know, if people wonder about like why has OpenAI blown so far ahead of other things, there's, there's a lot of answers to that question that are valid. Mm -hmm. But another one is that they have actually made the investments in the data sets that other folks have not. Yeah. And so if you have any intention of doing an AI driven thing, you have to ask yourself early, does the data exist or do we have to go create it? Because if the answer is it does not exist and you have to go create it, you have a major sequencing and cost problem, which by the way, we learned the hard way. <laughs> okay, got it. And maybe that's that's a good a good segue to the to the next phase. So how so seems to be that the hard part was this analysis and the selection. So the articulation of the strategy was simply saying, hey, this is the problem we are tackling and we will take this much time, or how actually kind of came about articulating the I would call it the final artifact for the strategy, if there was such a thing. Well, there was a first, it evolved, right? As, as you, one might expect, there was a first cut at this and then it, it evolved in sequential passes. So the first pass was not as detailed as I, or not as, as uh, coherent as I described. We saw that like, there was an opportunity. We thought there was something here. Let's go put some work into this. We came, you know, did a bunch of work, came back. And it was sort of this every, you know, three to six months updating and refreshing and, and adapting to what we were learning as we were going forward. Um, and, and a lot of this, because we were, we had this, you know, again, hardware and AI and getting the data and all this stuff, it took a while for us to get in market. Um, it wasn't like launching a thing on the web where you just deploy it and off you go. So it, it took a while for us to start getting the market feedback we needed, um, to start to shape the strategy. So it, it was a sequential thing or, or maybe iterative is a better way to say it, where we, we had a first rough cut and then we figured out like, oh, we're, you know, 40% wrong here. Let's. Let's cut that down on this next pass. Let's get it down to 30% wrong. And what happened was as, as each, each time we went back and updated the strategy, we got a little less wrong. So that was good. And, but the other thing that I think is important to describe here is that each pass, you actually are seeing new opportunities. So mm -hmm. the thing I said about the sequencing of products where we said, oh, there's all these other things you could build. You could build the biomass, you could build the tracking, the traceability, whatever. We actually didn't see all that up front. We only saw really the first opportunity around the lice thing. And we said, we think that's the one. Let's see what else there is. As we went forward, this sequencing emerged within fish. And then even further, you know, fast forward a year, we saw the sequencing available across species. So this, this actually became the, the cornerstone of a multi-species roadmap. And what that means is if you're in animal health, like there, there are veterinarians, right? Like there's doctors for animals, like there are for humans. And so if you're an animal health company, you deal with fish, you deal with cows, you deal with pigs, with chickens, whatever. And each of those is an entire world unto itself. And so as we went forward, what actually emerged was, oh, there's an opportunity here to make this thing that we're talking about, this like shift from being purely selling physical products, you know, mm -hmm. selling like drugs to make fish healthier, for example, to selling services that are digitally powered and tech enabled. And that okay. insight uh, that you could go from selling physical products to help farmers to selling them digital services to help farmers, that realization became the realization that powered what is now a multi-species, multi-industry roll-up that yeah. was I don't, I can't share the number, but like billions and billions of dollars of enterprise value. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that portfolio strategy that you, you were referring to before. Yeah. That's, but, but the thing I want to stress there is that the portfolio strategy emerged. Much. Yeah. We didn't see that so up I, front. I have several questions to that. So the first one maybe is, so this thing that was at the beginning, 40% wrong, what was it? So what's the, the, the shape, uh, the, the artifact? Uh, what's there oh, sorry. The artifact. I, I apologize. Yeah. I didn't realize that was the, the question you wanted. No, no, no. Um, fine. So, so there's a number of different ways to do it. Uh, we, I, I like to do it a few ways. First off, I try to, we, I like to push the thinking in prose first. Uh, so I'm a big fan of, you know, like a six pager, for example. No, perfect. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love, I love a six pager written just, just in Markdown where you, there's no option to make this thing visually fancy. It's just, it has to stand completely on its own, you know, on its own mm -hmm. two feet. And so that was the first round. And so we would hammer on that internally and, you know, send this thing back and forth and I'd send a draft and somebody would say, I, you know, they'd mark it up and do passes and send it back. And we do that for a while. 
And then once that felt really solid, that's not a very good asset to distribute. Like a lot of people, especially like your teams, the, the IC, the IC folks who are heads down building stuff, a lot of them aren't going to stop and read a six pager. It's like the wrong context, the wrong altitude in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So then it was, how do we distill this thing down for the team? And so what I started doing was at every, we, you know, we did a quarterly update. And so every quarter I would have this kickoff meeting and I would update all the teams on, on how this was going. And I'd have different people come in and talk about pieces of what we had learned. So we'd have our, one of my stakeholders who really knew about the farmers would talk about that. One of the stakeholders who really knew about the data would talk about that. Um, the tech lead who was on top of the algorithms, would he would talk about that? So on and so forth. How often and, you said that? Uh, so I would, well, there was of course the first, like the first kickoff for it, but then every quarter I would kind of do, we would do a refresh or not a refresh, an update. Like it'd just be like, Hey, like this is how it's changing because most of the, most of my teams, they would be very heads down as you would expect, right? They're building stuff all day. Yeah. And so it, when you're in that environment, it's easy to lose sight or kind of lose track of the larger context. And so I would just always be doing every quarter. I would try to refresh that context and then what I would do is pick one or two things and at every weekly meeting, I would just share one anecdote or one story just to kind of like refresh the context before we got into the weeds of whatever yeah. was going on that week. Yeah. Um, because especially because we were, we had these long lead time things with hardware, with AI algorithms and computer vision and so on and so forth. I was very concerned that the engineering teams, which were pretty extensive here and distributed by the way, across different countries. And like, yeah. I was concerned that people would get out of sync and start running in five directions. And so yeah. I was constantly trying to update the context. Um, and then one other trick that we did, and this is something that I, I can't believe is not more popular, but I think this is useful for people. Every time I had a, clar a, a clarification conversation with somebody, like let's say I was in my tech lead's office and we had a whiteboard session about whatever, where mm -hmm. he, you know, he would be like, I don't understand this. Why are we doing this? We'd hash it out and whatever emerged at the end of it, we would do a one minute video. And so just like standing at the whiteboard, I'd be like, Hey, mm -hmm. walk me through what's on this whiteboard from your perspective. And, and this being my tech lead, because I had already said <laughs> my stuff. We wanted his perspective. And so I'd be like, yeah. Hey, walk us through this, this thing on the whiteboard. And he would, and it takes, you know, 45 seconds, but that would encapsulate like an hour and a half of discussion. And then we would drop yeah. it in the Slack channel. It'd be like, yo, update, check this out. Everybody would watch it because it's 45 seconds. And so yeah. it was this really lightweight way to keep people like, it just was a little heartbeat of staying up to date on like the context. Like, what are we doing? Why does this matter? Wait, what are we doing again? Like, it was that. <laughs> Love that. We we should push for for that more. Um, I, I have one. So related to what you're saying about this kind of long lead time. So what was the the um, the time frame for the strategy? And the second one, and maybe closely related, is how were you measuring success? Because this is kind of a very new thing that will ship in in long time. So how you make sure that this will actually succeed before wasting you know millions in in building it. It's a great set of questions. I think usually we would be targeting something like the next year, right? Mm -hmm. it, because it, we knew this was moving. It was moving and changing pretty quick. Like even every, every, even every three to six months, there was a new player in the market, a new startup going after this or whatever. So we were targeting like roughly a year. And so it was almost just like rolling one year windows where, you know, come up with a thing three to six months later, we're, we're updating that and we're now pushing out a year again. And so now yes. we're, we're actually looking out to what, would have been 18 months from the original start, but then you do it again. And so now you're at 24 months out. And so that was what we did in the first, like the first, frankly, like probably two to three years. And then later as we got into market and we started to see like the bigger picture of what was available in terms of like the portfolio strategy, then you started to see like a multi-year, you know, three to five okay. years out right. kind of thing. But in the beginning, yeah. it was not that for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there was like, and I also want to be clear, like there was a lot of really smart people involved in us. This is like, I, I was sort of helping. I was one player in this process. I'm not the only one doing this, just to be really clear about that. Um, now, now, your second one. Yeah, no, I'm a lot of great people involved in this. Uh, so to your second question of like, how do you know it's going to be successful? Um, I mean, once you're in market, you're getting direct customer user feedback. You're starting to see sales numbers, those kinds of things. That's pretty straightforward. The, the trickier bit is, I think, that you're asking about is before that. Is that 
Yeah. Right. And by, by the way, how long did it take to get to market? So I imagine this one year period was not to get to market, which is kind of having some. Uh, it would depend on your definition of getting to market. If if you if you if your definition of getting to market is uh, I mean we were getting to, we were sort of quote unquote in market with early prototypes definitely in year one I mean we were we had okay. stuff in the water within the first year, um, and, and that was expensive and and difficult and all the things <laughs> but we also like we knew we were going to be wildly wrong about a, a ton of assumptions technically because like again remember we're talking about computer vision underwater remotely like. There's so many things that can go wrong. And so we, we were doing a lot of prototypes and we started, we got stuff in the water within a number, a single digit number of months. Like, I don't remember okay. if it was five months or eight months, but it was definitely a single digit number of months. And so we were getting feedback pretty quickly on the feasibility side and, and really we, those were also going at farms. So we, we had, you could think of it as like a customer development program. Yeah. You know, we had farms we were working with. And we were embedding early tech in their farms to, you know, run it alongside. We would run stuff alongside their existing two guys in a boat system and understand, like, <laughs> is this going to work? Is this better? Good. You know, and we yeah. get, I'd get, you know, emails yeah. from farm managers. They're like, the thing is so wrong. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and so we'd be like, oh, God, all right, we have to go figure that out. So, so we, we did all the kind of customer development type things that you, you would hope you would do, right? We, were, we had tech in the yeah. water, in the field. Um, you know, a lot of flights yeah. across the, across the Atlantic, a lot of flying people around to farms and traveling and, and that kind of yeah. thing, which, uh, if anyone's running a distributed team now, please get your people together in a room as soon as possible. Uh, you need the FaceTime. Interesting. And um, maybe, um, so I, I assume that this may, may be a big assumption, but the feasibility or the, the, the being able to build the thing was the really risky part since it was a kind of such a painful problem solving a very ugly way and a lot of money uh, on the table mm -hmm. that the, the, yes. the kind of the market, if you can solve it, the market was there. Largely. So this one was definitely way, way high on feasibility risk. So feasibility risk was like a, a nine or a 10 out of 10. Um, usability was, eh, I don't know, five. Uh, value was, was pretty low risk. We knew there was a really painful problem here. Um, the viability though was, was a real risk. This is a very complex business with a lot of moving pieces, a lot of questions of like, what's the business model? Could we sell it for enough? Would those, would the numbers make sense, et cetera? So I would oh, say yeah. the viability was like an eight and that took an enormous amount of work. But in terms of the core value to the customer, actually it was a little higher than you would think. Actually, I'm giving it too, it's, it's too obvious in retrospect, but at the time it was not as obvious because yeah. there was a fair number of, of farms for whom the existing solution of two dudes in a boat was okay. Honestly, they were like, Hey, I've been doing it this way for years and I'm okay. And so there, there, there actually was some real questions there of like, okay, which sub segment of the market hmm. actually has this problem enough that they're going to be willing to really pay. Um, because you know, homie over there with his like two pens doesn't care. He's got his, yeah. his two sons in a boat and they're free <laughs> or cheap. <laughs> right. So there actually was some more value risk than, than, uh, than one would say in retrospect at the time it was not so clear. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think about kind of the, the adoption curve and all these things that can play out, but yeah, that makes sense. Um, oh, yeah. okay. I remember I have a spread, I had a spreadsheet somewhere that had like mapped out every farm in Norway and had an estimate of where they were on that adoption curve and trying to come up with this crazy go to market plan. It was absurd. <laughs> okay. I think that, that the story can, can continue forever, but I want to get a big question of time and maybe come back in time and, and, and now understand how your, your thinking about strategy evolve over time. Um, so I know that you have been in from a different position, helping other companies. So what would you say are some major learnings or differences in how we are doing things now? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I would say the, the core principles of strategy, which, which I think are, are well articulated, like in your book, in Marty's book, um, for example, you know, there's a lot of good strategy ideas out there that give you the shape of the principles. So I don't think that I think very differently about that. I don't, I, 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 it's still equally important to cut down the optionality and, and, you know, to, to cut and then prioritize or sequence, by the way, um, that, that I don't think that's changed at all. I think what has changed in terms of my, my own thinking and process, like for example, there's a sleep tech company. It's one of my clients now that I'm working with. Uh, they're called Sleep Space. They gave me permission to talk about them. And so one of the things that we're doing is we, I call it like the leadership strategy stack. 
and it's sort of the, it's really, I guess what I'm saying is I, I value even more the strategic context now mm-hmm. than I did then. And what I mean by strategic context in this case is not just the market context and like the problem and the stuff that I said at the very beginning of this conversation of like why this is a thing and why there's an opportunity and all that, but really the stuff like the hard thinking that founders and leaders do. Like, what are we really doing here? Why? What does it look like? Like the stuff that it sounds super fuzzy until Mm -hmm. it sounds really, really fuzzy until you're the one who has to come up with it. And then you realize, oh, wow, this is shaping literally everything we do. And so this is something that usually is falling on CEOs, heads of product and founders. Frankly, this is usually the people I talk to about this stuff. And for me, it's like a seven part stack and it's, there's similar models out there. You know, there's the decision stack by Martin Erickson. That's great. There's uh, there's plenty of models. They're all, we're all saying the same thing. Um, and for me, I, I, what I think is important is a, that you cover all the pieces of the stack, which I'll name in a second and B that just that we're clear about terms. Like a lot of these terms get thrown around without any definition on them. So mm-hmm. for me, there's seven, seven pieces in the stack, which will all sound probably very familiar, but to me, this is kind of like the, the whole, the whole picture. Um, first of all is, is purpose. And this is what a lot of people call this mission. Um, but what I mean, it's like, what, what, why are we doing this? Like, what's the point of this whole thing? And, and this is the, the sort of the feel good, inspiring, subjective statement, right? Um, um, and then the next one is, is vision. And so vision, I think the number one thing that everybody gets wrong about vision is you can't see it. Like I, I talk to so many people and they're like, oh, I'm like, what's, what's the, what's the product vision? Run me through it. And they, they don't show me anything. They, they start spouting off words at me that don't necessarily make a lot of sense and nobody's excited about it. There's no emotion. Like I, I want to see it and it needs to be emotional and resonant because humans are wired to think in pictures and stories. That is all people really remember. And so your vision needs to be pictures and stories. <laughs> you, can, you can hang the numbers onto it later, but pictures and stories. Okay. And so you don't have to spend 500 grand, like a big enterprise would, you know, to make a gorgeous video. I mean, if you want, if you have the budget and you want to go for it. And, and there's some great examples of like, I really love the, uh, if you go back like seven years, the Microsoft productivity vision is a great example. Mm-hmm. John Deere had a great one from like five or eight years ago. These are just on YouTube. Um, SpaceX, these are great. These are great examples of a vision. They hit you, you see them, they're emotional, et cetera. Um, number three is values. Like what are, for me, I think of a road trip, like we're, we're doing this big trip, we're driving somewhere. Like what are the rules of the road? How do we choose to hold ourselves accountable? Um, and I think the big thing that gets missed on values is a, everyone does what I like to call mom and apple pie values. You know, it's like stuff that everybody would say like integrity. You're like, okay, well, for who, for who is that not true? Like if it's true for everyone, then we're not saying anything, right? So, so I want something that takes a stance and then I want to see it mapped into behavior. So, okay. If you say, um, you know, if you say, for example, uh, we value beauty, that is something that not everybody would say, right? Mm -hmm. There are companies like, like Asana, for example, values design. They value aesthetics is, is one example or Tesla. Like they value aesthetics. A ton of companies would not say that. And then I want to say, like, what does that mean in behavior? Like, how does it, how does a team member know if they're doing it? So that was number three. That's values. Number four is mission. I call it mission, but this is like the goal. This is like, I need something. What's the, you know, the BHAG, the, the big, hairy, audacious mm-hmm. goal. Yeah, like, yeah. what is the concrete uh, mission that we are, we are going for? And the reason I separate out mission from purpose in this sense, um, because a lot of people use those terms interchangeably, um, I grew up in a military family. And to me, missions were something that was something we talked about and missions in my world are concrete and achievable. And Mm -hmm. the way the mission is often used, it is not that it is not concrete nor achievable. It's an intention. So purpose is more like an intention mission. It should be achievable. It should be a real thing. We can say we did it or not. Okay. Now, just to wrap this up, we have strategy. Now we're very much in your wheelhouse and all the stuff we've been talking about. It's like, cool. We have a goal. We got a vision. What are we going to do? How are we doing this thing? And then we have objectives, which should make lots of sense to people of like, how do we map that into big goals and milestones effectively? And then lastly is, is principles, right? So product principles. And for me, the, um, the, the, the acid test of product principles is if you're a product leader, does this enable your teams to make the decisions you hope they make when you are not around? 
That makes sense. Because that's like the point of principles and all this stuff is to enable scalable quality decision-making. It's like good decision-making with high autonomy. That's the point. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I was, uh, along the lines of what you were saying, I was thinking about, uh, you mentioned kind of this gain importance over time. So maybe to ask you why, what was the, the maybe the trigger or, or how your thinking changed about having more clarity about this stack? Yeah, no, I love that question. So I think we're, the reason it emerged for me was I saw, I listened to one of your other episodes. I can't remember which guest it was. And he, he said, like, I used to be an engineer and I keep asking why. And people would say just because, and it drove him crazy. And I had the same thing. I always asked why, and I cannot stand the answer because that's how it is. And so I just found that for myself and, and most folks that I, I talked to, um, their performance was better, their motivation was higher, and they were a lot more fulfilled when they could see the bigger picture because then they could connect. You know, if I think of a junior engineer on, on one of my teams who I would, you know, have an occasional like skip level with, his work was so much better, or the data scientist, her, her work was so much better when she could see the bigger picture because I couldn't be there all the time. And so they made better decisions and they felt better. They were more fulfilled. Mm -hmm our retention was better. Everybody was happier yeah. and that stuff matters to me. Uh, and so I think that's where it was, where, you know, it's great to have the, the business, the hard, you know, the hard business case and that side of strategy, you got to have it. But I think more and more, I just started relating to, I started really thinking about like, what is the environment we are creating the culture for these humans? And so that's why I started really emphasizing that. And I just found that a lot of people in my work now, a lot of folks that I, I sit with haven't really done the hard thinking on these things. And so their, yeah. their foundation's a little shaky for what they're building. And that's not a good foundation to build a company on. Yeah. Super interesting because, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure if you have this coming to you, but usually the reaction I got to all this strategy framework is, hey, this is a lot of work. And then as we progress, we understand that, hey, this is not the only work you need to do. There's even more work you need to do to be a good leader. So yep. um, um, I don't, how, how to deal with these uh, reactions? I, I mean, I just say, yeah, you're right. It is a lot of work. Like, <laughs> that that is correct. <laughs> yes, that is, that is accurate. Let's go. Um, but it's essential, right? Because like, you know, and this is where I, 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 when I talk with like a CEO or a founder or a head of product, I'm like, you're right. It is a lot of work. But what's going to happen if you don't do it? Seriously, you're going to have people making all kinds of decisions when you are not around, going in, in like 12 different directions, may, maybe making decisions that you don't agree with, like on an ethical basis or that go against your company values because you haven't done the work to create and communicate a context. Everybody wants to be a part of something, right? We're wired this way as humans. And so this is our work as leaders to make something that people want to be a part of. We, yep. This is yeah. building an environment for people to excel in and thrive in. Um, and I think that's like essential work of a leader. I'm getting completely off track, but uh, <laughs> Sorry. interesting because no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue thinking on this. Leaders are eager to discuss, or many times are eager to discuss features with teams instead mm -hmm. of doing this hard work of building mm -hmm. the strategic context for them to make the totally. decisions. Uh, it's hard. Uh, luckily they can now be coached by Andrew and, and can get their clear thinking. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Give me a call. Happy to do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you're right. It is, it is easier to talk about features than it is to sit mm -hmm. down and grapple with these hard questions. These are the questions that, but these are the ones that keep you up at night. Cause so there, maybe that's your other upside. You'll sleep better. Right? <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> that's, I mean, Hey, every, every leader I know could, could go for that. <laughs> No, but I mean, what's interesting also is that you, you are paying these people to think about those features and they are probably more capable than you to do so. So you need to do your work, but. Exactly. Anyway, right? I mean, it's like, what's, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you very, like, rein me in here because I might go on a, a, a rant, but, you know, you very quickly get into the question of like, well, what is the job of a leader? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of answers to that question that people have given over the years. But, you know, one way I would, one assertion I would make about that is the job of leadership is to create an environment where people can thrive and excel at their, at their best. And yeah. when you start thinking of your, there's a great metaphor from, I think it's from the book team of teams. It's this idea of like leading like a gardener. Um, and, and it's like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything to make a plant grow. Like you, if you're a gardener, you can't force a plant to grow, <laughs> but you can create the conditions for it to thrive. And yeah. people are kind of like that. 
So we can create the conditions for our people to grow and thrive, which by the way, is what drives our entire business and all of our results and success and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, be a gardener. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Okay. Maybe I should close with the typical question. So what's some, some learning about strategy that you had along the years that we didn't cover, even though we covered a lot? I think we covered a lot. Uh, I'm trying to think if, if there's something I've got that we haven't said. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's a, a direct answer to your question, but I, I just want to revisit. I think the biggest learning is kind of what we were hinting at here um, in, in this last section. You know, everybody, everybody knows that focus is important. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean they do it, but they know it's important. But the thing that I think a lot of people don't give sufficient weight to is the power of culture. Um, and, and this goes back to like, not just the, the operating context, but the environment we were just speaking about. Uh, one of my big learnings is, is that culture is extremely powerful. And the reason I forget who told me this, but like the way that it's stuck in my head is this idea that context is decisive, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, you know, strategy is super important, but you can have the best strategy in the world. If your culture sucks, it won't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hopefully, I mean, going back to what you were saying, this strategy should be aligned to all these other pieces that are the ones forming your, your culture kind of values and purpose and all that. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah. Um, okay. This has been wonderful. Many, many insights, many, many stories. Uh, where can people find you? Where, where do you want to? Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, well, you can get me online. Uh, go to makethingsthatmatter.com. You can all links to everything is there. Um, and if you if you like any of the stuff that we were talking about here, I do a, a short two minute daily newsletter for product leaders. It'll basically help you be a better product leader in two minutes a day. Go to productleadershipdaily.com. Love it. Thank you so much, and let's uh, stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Nacho. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 100 Product Strategies, the podcast by Product Direction. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram to get access to free weekly content that helps product people upgrade their skills and become more successful. You can access more material, promotional trainings, and be notified of every episode of the show with Product Direction's weekly newsletter. Join thousands of product leaders by registering in productdirection.co 